0: Have you and your partner ever spent an evening with another couple, having dinner perhaps, and then afterwards while driving home you both realized that neither of you cared for one member of the other couple? You both liked him, but not her, or vice versa. Now what if an entire nation comprised of millions of people experienced something very similar? Let's say with a president and his first lady. Considering first ladies and their husbands, from Martha Washington to Melania, I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America.
1: All my life, watching America. All my life, there's panic in America. Oh, 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 oh. There's trouble in America. Oh, 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 This is Watching America. If I'm lucky enough to win. The public will be so lucky to have Melania as the first lady. She will be so beautiful and elegant and good from the heart. She will be a fabulous first lady. It's all right,
0: it's all right, all right.
1: She moves in a serious
0: way. Uh, We always have a great marriage and a strong relationship. And uh, he said many times that I'm a rock. For a whole family. It's alright, it's alright, alright. She moves in a I could say I'm the most bullied person in the world if you really see what people are saying about me.
2: Yesterday, there's been some discussion about your hat. And I wish people would focus on what I do, not what I wear.
0: Uh, We are two independent people, thinking on their own, and have a very open conversation.
1: She's amazing.
0: Certainly, our president is absolutely, completely thrilled with Melania, despite the fact that many in the nation are not. But there is one gentleman who rallies to her defense, and we're delighted to have him with us today. Would you please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Ron Kessler. Now, Ron Kessler worked for the Washington Post, and he was uh, along with Bernstein and uh, uh, other noted reporters of the time. So you remember the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. And here we are now. In the new millennia, and we are having for the first time, I think, a uh, almost universally misunderstood first lady. And yet you rally to her defense, as I've said, and like her. Give us uh, your impressions, if you would.
1: Well, I've interviewed a lot of the top people, and they all universally uh, admire her, Uh, whether it's Ryan Priebus or Steve Bannon or uh, others in, in the entourage. They say that she is actually a powerful aide in the Trump White House, that she will sit in on meetings, she'll summarize what others have said, and then she'll come up with her own strategy. Her judgment is impeccable. She keeps in mind, you know, what, what's good for Trump, but also uh, what's going to go over well. And... Um, I've gotten a lot of, you know, candid descriptions of of really her her brilliance.
0: Your prior book was in the president's secret service. And in that book, you noted that there were certain first ladies who were virtually despised. And one of them was obviously um, Hillary. Hillary was not liked at all. In fact, it was considered the worst detail to possibly get to be, you know, if you're on the bad side of the leadership of the Secret Service, you're going to sign to Hillary Clinton. On the other hand, you went on in your book to say that Laura Bush was beloved by everyone, that she was approachable, sweet, kind, brought food to people when they were standing outside in the rain and snow and what have you. How does Melania Trump stand, not with the immediate inner circle, but with the, if you will, for lack of a better term, the underlings in the Secret Service? Do you have any sense of that?
1: Yeah, she uh, treats the Secret Service agents with respect and consideration just the way Laura Bush did, just the way uh, Michelle Obama did. Uh, Trump also is is respectful of of the agents. And one thing about uh, Melania is she's not afraid to disagree with Trump. She'll give him articles that are critical uh, that she thinks he should read. Of course, he doesn't always listen to her advice. He tries to get him to stop tweeting so much, and that obviously has not worked. Uh, one little anecdote in my book, uh, uh, the Trump White House uh, illustrates the relationship between them. Tony Senecal, the butler at Mar-a-Lago, opened the door one day at Mar-a-Lago, and there was Martha Stewart. And she said, could I take a tour of Mar-a-Lago? And he said, sure, let's do it for 3 o'clock tomorrow. He told Trump, that then later in the day, Tony went to see if Trump needs anything in the private quarters. And Trump started screaming at him, you know, he has this temper that we know about. Uh, you dumbass, you should have scheduled it for noon tomorrow, not three, when the club members will be here. And they'll see Martha, and they'll be impressed. Martha will see them. Uh, so, of course, Tony rescheduled it for the next day. But in the middle of that tirade, uh, Melania walked in, and she said to Donald, I don't think you should be talking to Tony in that tone. And so that's a little glimpse into the relationship. And the next morning, Trump gave uh, Tony $2,000 in cash. Didn't say anything at all, but obviously that was his apology for his outburst.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. My special guest is Ron Kelsler, who's also the author of the best-selling book, New York Times, The Trump White House, Changing the Rules of the Game. Going back to Melania a bit further, you've known the couple basically for 20 odd years uh, uh, from early associations in, in Palm Beach and elsewhere. One of the things that you mentioned in your book is that she actually walked away from Donald Trump in 1998. Can you tell us that story?
1: Uh, This was after they started dating in the very beginning, which was September 1998. And Melania found out that Trump had gone back with a previous girlfriend and uh, saw some evidence of it and broke up with him immediately. They were scheduled to go to Mar-a-Lago that day. The pilot was all ready. uh, And she, she said, screw you. She didn't care about the billions of dollars, so that certainly tells you something. One little anecdote uh, that also illustrates her, her sense of humor, they were filming The Apprentice in the apartment upstairs, and she was drinking champagne, and uh, Donald was nearby, and one of the contestants went up to Melania and said, you're very lucky, looking, looking around at all the gold, and Melania motioned towards Trump and said, and he's not lucky?
0: So she's a lady who certainly has a sense of her own person. Certainly, a strong component of President Trump's base is the evangelical Christian uh, vote, which is very prominent. They seem to be extremely tolerant and forgiving of mistakes uh, and and disorder that perhaps has been manifested in recent history, but. Here is a Catholic girl who's a First Lady, and she seems to have quite an influence uh, behind the scenes in his uh, faith, Christianity. Is that true? I mean, I know he was raised Presbyterian and and went to the Marble Cathedral for a while with Norman Vincent Peale. Uh, What do you read on this?
1: Yeah, that's true. And When they started going together, and especially after they got married, he went more often to church with her, whether... uh, Protestant or Catholic, whereas before uh, he would never go to church. So there's no question she has had that influence on him.
0: Do you think that she was well served by choosing, as the First Lady's issue, bullying, in particular internet bullying, given her husband's propensity to be, at best, reckless from time to time?
1: I think whatever she chose, she would be mocked and derided by, uh, by the left, Um, And and I think it just comes down to this is what she really believes in.
0: What is the key thing that you have observed that works between she and her husband?
1: You know, first of all, she's very smart and she's candid. I think those are two qualities that he admires, uh, not to mention her beauty, of course. But she will stand up to him and and he uh, respects that as well. Um, And there's that sense of humor. She's really a a wonderful package. You know, we we socialize with her at Mar-a-Lago, and uh, she's always gracious. And, in fact, at her last visit, uh, she was sitting next to Donald having dinner, and Donald called us over. And she said to me in front of Donald and my wife, I read every one of your articles. Well, what more do you want to know about her good judgment?
0: Well, it was my good judgment to invite you to be on this show, and we are so very grateful for you having been with us. We've been talking to Ronald Kessler, and he is the author of multiple books, 17 or 18, I think it is, at this point. And his latest is The Trump White House Changing the Rules of the Game. And if there's ever been a leader of this nation in recent history that has fit that bill, uh, it is without question Donald Trump.
1: She's amazing. This is
0: Watching America. After the break, we'll hear more about Melania Trump and many other first ladies from Kate Anderson Brower, author of the New York Times bestseller First Women, the grace and power of America's modern first ladies. We'll be right back. Our guest is Kate Anderson-Brower. She is the best-selling author of, well, a number of books on the New York Times bestsellers list, but most recently, First Women, The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies. Welcome to the show. It's delightful to have you here.
3: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Let's begin with Melania, and then we'll kind of reel backwards and and, uh, go to former years. Uh, Her standing has been um, checkered at best. To no fault of her own, she certainly was not served well by her speech writer when they uh, basically plagiarized so much from, from Michelle's speech, and there's that very embarrassing footage which one can find on YouTube easily going back and forth to and fro between the two statements, and yet she's still trying to set apart and cut her own path. What is your general impression of how the first lady, current first lady, is doing?
3: Well, I think she is um, a fascinating person because she is so reclusive, and we really haven't had a first lady like her since you'd have to go way back to Beth Truman. And I think she certainly looks at herself as more of a Jackie Kennedy than Beth Truman, right? But um, Jackie Kennedy famously opened up the White House for a tour to uh, with CBS um, and was actually, you know, a little bit less. Um, press shy than Melania, and I think the, the issue with Melania is that her approval ratings really are on a roller coaster ride. I mean, she was doing much better than her husband for a long time, and then most recently, a month or so ago, a poll was done that showed that her approval rating was dipping because she's doing interviews now, we're hearing more from her. So I think that most people want to like this first lady. And I think that they want to cut her a lot of slack. Even Democrats want to think she's, you know, a damsel in distress, being kept captive in the White House. And when they learn more about her, which is that she's intelligent, she's very aware of what's going on, she agrees with a lot of her husband's policies, that that's when I think they like her less. Um, and her approval ratings go down, and she's less sympathetic because he is uh, a divisive, you know, figure— uh, in American politics. So, you know, she's got a really difficult job, and every First Lady has a tough job because there's nothing in the Constitution that delineates what the role is, there's no pay, um, and yet you're judged constantly, right? So it's a really difficult position to
0: be in for anyone. Some would argue, though, perhaps, Kate, that she has been her own worst enemy because uh, she is a fashion plate. There's no question about it. Her profession was that of a professional uh, model. The media has not always been kind. She has not graced the covers of all the magazines, for instance, that Michelle has. Do you suppose that, in fact, by being so gorgeous as she is, that she is allowing this to be kind of a, a, a rather fateful situation where she's not going to be accepted because she is principally that, so glamorous.
3: Well, I mean, yeah, she wore a jacket in Italy that cost upwards of $50,000, which is around the American you know average household income. So she's wearing clothes that are inaccessible, and she is doing things like getting off to mar a lago during the shutdown and doing some things that I actually think show that she's very independent, right? She does what she wants. She doesn't care what people think. Um, I mean, of course, she's human, so she does care a bit. And I know some of this reporting does bother her, and her poll numbers are important to her. But I think you're right. I think she's a former model. She's very glamorous and intimidating and not somebody you'd want to have coffee with necessarily because, you know, because of that. She's not relatable, Um And that really matters for First Ladies. It's really important that they be relatable and that people feel like they are consolers in chief. and, you know, they play this really unique role in our country of being there as Laura Bush was after 9-11, as Michelle Obama was as a mom-in-chief, you know, as these women who are um, likable and pretty but not too pretty, right? There's like a fine line that you're walking and... I think she finds herself in that
0: predicament. For those of you just tuning in, this is Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell. My guest is Kay Anderson-Brower, who is the author of First Women, The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies. Regarding uh, Melania, she really got off to a bad start, literally, on Inauguration Day. And that was that very embarrassing, awkward moment on the steps when uh, both she and Donald Trump arrived at the White House to be met by Barack Obama and Michelle. She walked up very graciously with a gift for Michelle. And, uh, you know, I've always been impressed with Michelle Obama and normally have thought her to be very warm and gracious. But she acted when Melania handed her a gift as if she'd been handed a severed head. What was all that drama about?
3: Well, I mean, that's protocol, right? And, you know, I've talked to Michelle Obama's social secretary about it, and it was, you know, not Infected. So that she didn't know where to put the gift, and um, I think it was kind of awkward. But then again, you know, um, Michelle Obama has brought a gift for Laura Bush at one point and didn't know that that's not what you're supposed to do. Um, I think she just, you know, it was a tough day for the Obamas because they obviously were not happy about President Trump moving into the White House, and so on top of that, there was that awkward moment. You're right, where she's looking around and doesn't seem to know where to put the box. But then again, people who like Donald Trump, they like his uh, honesty. He says what he thinks, and he doesn't really hide his feelings that well. And I think people like Michelle Obama kind of feel the same way about her. I mean, she clearly wasn't happy that day. You could see the look on her face during his inaugural address. And so there's there's something kind of nice in a politician where you actually see uh, see who they really are and what they're really thinking, rather than this kind of PC world that we've been living in for so long.
0: Well, you mentioned Bess Truman. Where exactly are the similarities as you see them?
3: Well, Melania Trump doesn't like living in the White House. So she leaves at every opportunity. She really prefers being at Bedminster in New Jersey or being in Mar-a-Lago, Um, and Beth Truman would leave the White House at every opportunity to go home to independent Missouri. Um, she famously said, you know what, you don't need to know me. I'm just the president's wife and the mother of his daughter. Um, and I think there is a bit of that with Melania Trump. She, um, is not as active a first lady as the women who came before her. She's really cut down on public appearances. She's focused on raising their son. um, And so I think she's very different from these other women. And some would say, you know, not moving into the White House right away. She waited five months to move in. She wanted her son there and to finish school in New York City. You know, it's kind of a brave, bold move to make. No one's done that before. The last First Lady who didn't move directly into the White House was William Henry Harrison's wife. And that's because he, you know, died um, before she could move in. So... It was amazing that she did that, and I think a lot of other first ladies are kind of jealous that she she sort of is a norm rule breaking first lady in the same way that her husband breaks a lot of rules as president, and they are they're testing the limits, and and maybe in some ways that's a good thing.
0: Well, you said something very interesting. You you alluded to the fact that um, first of all, the wardrobe of Melania is is by the means of the average person excessive. And uh, as you say, if a dress costs $50,000, that's more than many people's income. If you have uh, a raving beauty uh, in the form of a first lady, and that, in fact, can work against her, can a certain degree of homeliness actually work in favor? I'm thinking in particular of Eleanor Roosevelt.
3: You know, I think what Eleanor Roosevelt did was she, you know, she had these famous press conferences with women reporters, and she was incredibly politically active. Hillary Clinton is probably in a similar vein. You know, I I think there's a certain kind of matronly quality that people might like about Eleanor Roosevelt in terms of her appearance, but I, I also think that someone like Laura Bush was incredibly popular because. She certainly was attractive, but she was um, relatable and kind of, you know, like your friend's mother or, or your wife, you know. I mean, it was someone who wasn't sort of cold-looking. I think that Melania can be intimidating. She doesn't smile a lot, for instance. But, you know, she does, I've been told, have a good sense of humor, and behind the scenes she is quite nice. But you don't get to see that side of her, I think, because she's very guarded and... and um Afraid of of getting in trouble, you know, and doing something wrong because it seems like when she does do interviews, it kind of blows negatively for her because people are dissecting what she's saying.
0: You wrote a former book, The Residence, which was a New York Times number one bestseller, and that actually gives you even greater insight and astute ability to perceive the private life of first ladies. Actually, moving into the residence. What has been the experience of the most recent ladies as far as moving into the private residence? Do they actually feel it's a cordoned off area for them? Do they really feel private when they're up there?
3: I think it depends on who you're talking about. I think the Bushes absolutely did. Both Barbara Bush and Laura Bush, who I interviewed, loved living in the White House, were very familiar with it. You know, Laura Bush told me that she's the she was very lucky to have a mother-in-law you know, who could walk her through that and not since Louisa Adams was there someone who had that ability. And Abigail Adams was actually had passed away by the time her son was president. So really the Bushes are very unique. Um I think for the Obamas and the Clintons and the Carters, it was uh, it was harder. You know, I talked to more than fifty former butlers, maids, housekeepers, uh florists, and they all sort of described this tension there because They always, especially with the Clintons, always felt like people were listening in on their conversations. They could never really be alone. There is always a butler um, upstairs waiting uh, by the pantry at any time to bring you whatever you want. And it was uncomfortable for them. But I actually think for the Trumps, it's easier because they are used to having a staff in the same way the Bushes were. And so in some ways, it makes it easier to live in the White House because that's you know, what you know and what you're familiar with. And um, it's it's more comfortable and they know how to treat the staff because they're they're used to to having people working for them.
0: For those just joining us, you're listening to Watching America and my special guest is Kay Anderson Brower. Her latest book is entitled First Women, The Grace and the Power of America's Modern First Ladies. Uh, She had part of her education in in my country, the UK, and she's also worked for CBS and uh, has been on various media outlets and also is the author of the best-selling prior book, The Residents. I want to venture into some delicacies here with you. Uh, Working with staff, and you've spoken about the the White House staff, we certainly have had some naughty presidents, uh, at least in relation to infidelities. It's not something... Uh, of the 21st century alone. We can go way, way, way back and uh, find that presidents had their companions. When there were people like Jack Kennedy, JFK, uh, we were told, or it's been alluded to at least, or alleged, that persons like Marilyn Monroe, uh, allegedly Angie Dickinson, the actress, and others, were escorted on weekends when Jackie Bouvier was away, and uh, various liaisons were underway in the White House private residency. What kind of pressure does that put on the White House staff?
3: There are really interesting memoirs written about this time period, and um, for me, I really like to talk to people who would obviously, as a reporter, you want to talk to first-hand sources with the Kennedys. You're quickly running out of people who are alive who can talk about it, but I did speak with many people who did work for the Kennedys as butlers—a handful and then also um, people who work for the Johnsons, who it's kind of a a few years removed and easier to to get them. And there are some stories about when Jackie would go off to their horse farm in Virginia, which she did all the time in Middleburg outside of Washington on the weekends. The White House pool at the time was there, and that's where the White House reporters now sit. That's where the White House pool used to be. And Jack Kennedy would be there swimming in the nude with various women, including famous, you know, celebrities, but also secretaries. And, um, there's this sad kind of scene where Jackie Kennedy is, uh, talking in speaking in French with a friend of hers. And she walks by the desk of one of these 20 something secretaries and says in French, this is the woman who's supposedly sleeping with my husband, you know, (laughs) so she knew what was going on. And in many marriages, um, especially at that class, at that position of power and money. And, you know, she grew up with her father, Black Jack Bouvier, cheating on her mother. Right. Um, So
0: she turned a blind eye.
3: Yeah, she did. It's really pretty sad. You know, she was a very hands-on mother. They, of course, had a nanny because of their socioeconomic status. She wasn't changing diapers regularly, but she set up a kindergarten in the solarium on the third floor of the White House for Caroline Kennedy, And, uh, and, you know, recruited a bunch of Caroline's friends to have this school on the the roof of the White House. So there's this weird juxtaposition with her husband, you know, cohorting with women on the weekends and then her being this dedicated mom. Um, It's a strange kind of unbelievable thing that it didn't come out at the time, right, that there was this agreement in the press. So
0: Jackie Jackie more or less just struck uh, you know struck it up to an issue of just expected sophistication of a sort I think so I mean
3: it, you know, how
0: well, do you explain for you know certainly mrs. Clinton uh, with Monica Lewinsky Jennifer flowers and, and so on and so forth uh, how did she position herself in her psyche to find this excusable or did she you know I have stories in the
3: residence for were- particularly about the Clintons. And at a certain point, Hillary Clinton uh, made her husband sleep on a sofa uh, in an adjoining room in the residence, and that the, the female maids were all very excited about this and kind of rooting for her. Um, I think that she was humiliated. And, I, and much the way Melania Trump with Stormy Daniels and Carrie McDougall, like, these are humiliations that if their husbands weren't president, it wouldn't be a front-page story. And so... I think they both Melania Trump and Hillary Clinton know that their husbands have been unfaithful to them. I think the humiliating part of it is the problem for them. So, I don't know if they accepted it. You know, you'd have to think that mm. you'd have to think that both of those women knew what they were getting into with both of these men.
0: Two women that in recent history struck me as the most isolated and lonely women in the White House. In succession, and that would be Pat Nixon and Betty Ford, can you talk a little bit about them?
3: Well, I don't think I don't think Betty Ford was lonely in the White House. Now, she was an alcoholic, and she was addicted to pain medicine, um, and later founded the Betty Ford Center, of course. But you know, she she in the White House was able to really shine. She um, she had breast cancer, and so she had an and she was able to come out and talk about that at a time when nobody spoke about breast cancer. You know, she and Shirley Temple Black changed that forever. And she had been a housewife, basically, with their four kids while Gerald Ford was traveling, raising money for the Republican Party. So I talked to two of their children who told me, you know, listen, my mom was an ordinary woman in an extraordinary time, and she um, she was allowed to shine in the White House and do things she cared about. Uh, and, and she really did a lot. I mean, she was there for less than three years, and and yet she's left this legacy that you could argue is beyond what her husband has done with the Betty Ford Center. So I don't see her the same way, but I think Pat Nixon is definitely a tragic figure, and there are lots of stories. And I, I talked to one resident staffer who described her crying in the elevator with the butlers when Watergate was unfolding and, you know, drinking heavily, uh, you know, she was really in the eye of the storm. So you have to feel badly for
0: her. Uh When you spoke with uh, Betty Ford's children, did you speak with Jack Ford?
3: No, Stephen Ford.
0: Okay. Do you know Jack Ford? I don't know him personally, but I, I know that he, he found it extremely difficult uh, being in the White House. He was able to parlay mm-hmm. that into rock and roll relationships, though. I mean, he was Mm-hmm. responsible for the concert of Bangladesh, uh, the money at least proceeds being freed with George Harrison, and he also tried to establish a, a friendship with David Bowie. And I think after daddy being in the uh, White House, then I think he felt somewhat flung to the side. as is not unusual for the children of uh, presidents once they leave office.
3: I Yeah, I think you're right. The older children especially have a hard time. I talked to a White House butler and an usher who both told me they always feel badly most for the teenagers move into the White House. I think Jack Ford was maybe in his early 20s at the time, but because they know what life is like without this, whereas Sasha Obama, who was seven years old, or, you know, they when you're very, very young, you have no recollection of anything else. So It's the freedom being taken away from you and the celebrity and and what comes along with that. And then, like you're saying, they're kind of thrown, jettisoned, um, and a new family moved in, and no one cares as much about them anymore. And I think that's got to be very difficult.
0: Of all the persons that you've looked at, all the first ladies, which one have you found to be the most compelling, and why?
3: That's such a great question. I mean, I do think... You know, strangely, Betty Ford was only there for uh, less than three years, but her, her kind of blunt personality and the way that she faced her demons after she left the White House makes her really compelling. But, you know, more recently, I think someone like Hillary Clinton, whether you like her or not, is an incredibly fascinating character who... Um, I, th- I think and I, I know she regrets having that West Wing office and she regrets being so involved in health care. Um, she made some mistakes and she she was more involved as a first lady than a lot of Americans wanted her to be because she wasn't elected. And I think that that's the thing that someone like Hillary Clinton and Rosalind Carter run into is that they're so involved sitting in on cabinet meetings, you know, getting involved directly in policy like Hillary Clinton did. When people say, you know, that's not what we want, you were not elected. So it makes it harder for every first lady like Michelle Obama, like Melania Trump, to kind of walk that line of seeming involved, having a campaign, trying to do some good, but also not trying to be too much uh, in the spotlight.
0: A closing fantasy before your departure. Let me ask you, if you were approached by the next future first lady, and she called you up, And she said, Kate Anderson-Brower, I've read your books. I adore your books. You're clever, pithy, insightful. May I spend about half an hour with you and seek your advocacy? How should I assume this role? Kate, what would you say to them?
3: Well, that would be a dream come true, first of all. Well, that's that's why I
0: offered it. Yes, exactly,
3: right. Um, although I have heard, I have been told that Melania Trump has read my book on the First Lady, so that she is very interested in history. Ooh, very good. Um, yeah, but uh, she has not sought my advice on the position. And maybe the next one will be a First Gentleman, which would make it really interesting,
1: right? Yes, um, yes.
3: I, Yeah, of course, I would think that would be wonderful. And I would tell them to pick one issue that they care deeply about and really hone in on it. The thing that Melania Trump does is be best, is great. It's much better when she talks about children who are addicted to opioids and trying to do mm. something about the opioid addiction epidemic in this country rather than just do something to help children. You know, you really have to, you have to hone in on a specific issue that you care about, and you can do a lot of good if you do that.
0: Well, Kate, you've been an utter delight, and I hope that you will keep us connected with the next book when it comes out. We look forward to that. Our guest has been Kate Anderson Brower and the title of her book is First Women, The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies. Thank you so very, very much.
2: Thank you, it's been a pleasure.
0: This is Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. When we return, we will go back in time to the first First Lady with Catherine Pittman, a historical interpreter of Martha Washington in Colonial Williamsburg. We will be right back. I'm happy to invite to our program, Catherine Pittman. She is a historical interpreter at Colonia Williamsburg in Virginia. Now, there are various places on the East Coast where you have facilities that are indicative of an earlier era in American history, but I think the one that probably garners the greatest respect and certainly enjoyment from travelers all over the nation and around the world, it certainly has to be Colonia Williamsburg. Now, her greatest effort and employment and talent is displayed in her persona, or assumed persona, as the First first Lady of the United States, although at the time that term was not used. She plays Martha Washington. Catherine Pittman, welcome to Watching America.
2: Well, thank you, and thank you for your very kind words.
0: The first thing I want to ask you is, you know, very few people start out saying that they want to impersonate another person. But you are impersonating the first lady, or as the term, as I said, had not been used at that time, at least the first wife of the first president of the United States. How did that come about?
2: Well, admittedly, I have not lived my entire life hoping to portray Martha Washington. This was something that I kind of stumbled upon. I have always had a very deep love of history. I am from North Carolina originally, just three or four hours away from Williamsburg, and I'm the daughter of two history buffs. Um, My mother had a fascination with Thomas Jefferson and Abigail Adams. My father, I think in a past life, went on the Lewis and Clark expedition. Um, (laughs) And so every time that we had any chance to get away, normally our family would come to Colonial Williamsburg. So I quite literally grew up coming to Colonial Williamsburg, and that influenced my studies in school. I went to school for theater and history, again, with no knowledge or inclination that I ever wanted to work for Colonial Williamsburg, but those were just my two passions. Traveled the world doing musical theater and opera, and uh, finally decided that I really wanted to settle down, and I ended up getting my paralegal degree from Duke University, thinking that that was going to be my real person, adult job. And in celebrating that degree, my parents brought me to Colonial Williamsburg and uh, I was able to meet some of the interpreters on a different level, you know, more of an adult level and Mm. and was able to engage in conversation with them and and get to know what they do. And that led to a conversation about, well, you know, there's a job opening.
0: How does it happen that you got to play Martha Washington? Did you apply for that particular role? Did Did you test? Did you audition? Or do you get to choose the persona that you would like to assume?
2: It really depends. Um, I came in uh, kind of through the ranks, as it were. I started as an actor interpreter, meaning I was a jack-of-all-trades. I could portray any person um, that I had a significant amount of research for or even have a composite character. So I initially came to the foundation not portraying one particular person. Um, However, we do have several cases where those particular people are sought for. Uh, We just finished completing the process for uh, finding our young George Washington, and so we were very specific about the person. For myself, with Mrs. Washington, as it turned out, um, we had several people who were very interested in her early story, in her early life, and they wanted to put forth funding to tell that story. And so instead of an audition process, I guess the powers that be had kind of had their eyes on me, and uh, they... Offered me the role.
0: How old are you as as Martha Washington, your portrayal?
2: Well, I portray her all the way from 1759 to 1789. The youngest that she would be is about 26, 27.
0: And at the high end?
2: Oh, let's see. She is, I guess, 58 ish. Okay. I haven't quite tiptoed near the 60s yet.
0: Well, before she was Mrs. Washington, Martha was actually. Mrs. Custis. Can you tell us a little bit about that phase of her life?
2: Oh yes, it's a fascinating phase. Um, She was born at Andridge, to start at the beginning. uh, uh, Fairly local to Williamsburg. She was born only 25 miles west of the city. And when she was 18 years old, she fell in love with, and probably was before she was 18, but she had fallen in love with, uh, for lack of a better term, her next-door neighbour, A man by the name of Daniel Park Custis, whom was a very uh, was the only son of a very very powerful man in Williamsburg, John Custis IV, and he was her neighbor out in New Kent. Their estates joined. His was called the White House. Hers was called Chestnut Grove, or her parents' estate, I should say. And she decided she wanted to marry him. Uh, He was 20 years her senior. He had been engaged several times before, but every time he found uh, that he wanted to marry someone, his father would break off the engagement. His father was a very um, eccentric, tyrannical type of person, uh, very almost obsessed with the legacy of the Custis family and specifically controlling his son. And so there was a little bit of a back and forth between Martha and Mr. Custis, but she prevailed. Uh, We don't know what she said, but it was described in the letter that uh, basically his opinion of her was changed due to a prudent speech made by Miss Dandridge. So I can only imagine what 17-year-old Martha Dandridge said to this very powerful, scary man. But they were married at, we believe, her family estate of Chestnut Grove in May of 1750. And they had a very happy, from what we can tell, seven-year marriage and four children uh, two of whom passed away when they were still very young of childhood illnesses, but, of course, two that will go on to her second marriage with George Washington. And then, unfortunately, Daniel passed away very suddenly.
0: And what did he pass away from?
2: We're not certain. Um, historic record tells us that there had been an illness in the area. On the They lived on the Pamunkey River. They stayed out in New Kent County. Her daughter, Frances, passed away when she was two, and within that couple of months span, this same illness, or perhaps a different one, but in that same period, her son, John Park Custis, became extraordinarily ill. We have the medical records from uh, Dr. Carter out in Williamsburg staying the night trying to help ease um, young Master Custis's uh, illness. And we think it primarily manifested as a throat infection. But it seems like just when um, Jackie, her, or John Park Custis, was Turning the corner from it, it seemed to strike Daniel, and he was dead within four days.
0: Now, as I understood it, as a boy in England, uh, when I first learned about George Washington, that Martha was the one with the money, and that George, <laughs> as was the one with the talents and what have you, and and basically was attracted to the money. Is 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 that a misnomer? Is that incorrect? Or well,
2: <laughs> you got part of it right. Okay, he was a very wealthy widow. Um, By English common law, which, of course, Virginia was was, uh, following at the time, she received her widow's third, or her dower rights, which uh, in Virginia, and each colony interpreted differently. But in Virginia, that meant that she got a third of her deceased husband's real property and personal property. Now, personal property, she got absolute rights to, so she could sell or bequeath it. Real property, she had life rights to, so she had use of it. She had the profits of it during her lifetime. But, of course, primogenitor was still going on, and so at the end of her life, all of it would revert to her son. Um, So she had a third of the Custis property, and when I say a third of that property, it was a massive property spanning over six counties and 17,000 acres. So she had use of that with the understanding that when she remarried, if she remarried, her husband would, in effect, become the manager of it. He would never own it. But he and Martha would enjoy the benefits of the the profits from the estates. These are all estates down in the in the Tidewater area, um, all the Custis property down in, in Williamsburg and beyond. when she marries Washington, she does bring that wealth to the marriage and she also brings a higher social standing because as a Custis she is a little bit higher up in station than a Washington is. Now Washington's not a dirt part farmer he's He's very famous from the French and Indian War. He is of that gentry class, but he's definitely a few steps lower than a Custis. So when she marries and they move to Mount Vernon, they move to a Washington estate. He will eventually come into ownership of it.
0: Catherine, you are a trained actress, as you've indicated. When you are portraying somebody for crowds that are coming in and rotating perhaps by every 20 minutes or something to that effect, how do you maintain the integrity of your characterization? When you have children who are in what we would call in in England prams, but um, strollers and things of this nature, when they're acting out or asking strange questions, how do you stay in character and how do you handle that and perhaps diffuse awkwardness?
2: Of course. Well, at the end of the day, um, I have to remember that I'm not a reenactor. I'm an interpreter. And at the end of the day, my goal is to teach the audience about the life and the experiences of Martha Washington. So I need to find a way to make her relevant to a modern-day audience. Just the other day, for instance, a young boy, who it, it took all program for him to have the courage to raise his hand. But he raised his hand, and he asked me if um, George Washington and I were BFF. Now, Martha Washington <laughs> would have never known what BFF is. And instead of just shutting him down and saying, "Oh, young boy, you're just being silly. I don't know what you're talking about," I had him explain to me what a BFF was. And you know, he got to finally explaining, "Well, you're just really, really good friends." And so I was able to say, "Yes, my husband and I are very, very good friends." So I, I try to never shut down an audience member because I have to realize it takes mm. guts for them to raise their hand and ask questions, knowing that that chances are. I know more than them about the Washingtons. And so the fact that they're raising their hand to me is the first step of being courageous. And so I try and accept every question that's offered to me. Certainly, some people are trying to throw me off. Certainly some people are we were just talking about this the other day, the questions that begin isn't it true?
0: Isn't it true? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't
2: it true? So we always have to remember that we're teachers. And to make these historic figures accessible from the 18th century to the modern times means that you have to um, portray them in in a way that's welcoming. One of the wonderful things about Mrs. Washington is she was known for her hospitality and putting people at ease. So she's perfect for this method of teaching history
0: just she was really a template of graciousness for all first ladies that followed
2: i think so she admittedly she did not relish the role she did not want to go to the presidency there were some wonderful letters written by her to other family members saying that uh, she thought it was entirely too late for the general to be going back into public life. She even goes so far as to write her nephew when the day Washington left for the presidency and said, um, I think it's entirely too late for the general to go back into public life. I do not know if or when we will come home, um, but I know that I will have to follow him and our family will once again be deranged. That's a paraphrase, (laughs) but that's the same idea. But she, she... you know, the, the one word that I ascribe to Mrs. Washington is resilience. Mm. She is a woman that she married at the end of the – she married a farmer in 1759. He was retired military, and she was marrying a farmer. She didn't marry a general. She didn't marry a president. But every single life change that was thrown at the two of them, she accepted with grace and humility, and she just kept on rolling on that log. And it, it again, is reflected in the presidency. She didn't want to be there, but she made the best of that situation, and she has created lasting effects that even our current First Lady is expected to follow.
0: This is Watching America, and I am a delighted host because of my guest, Catherine Pittman, and she portrays Martha Washington for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. Catherine, let me ask you, in in your portrayal of Martha Washington, have you ever had a moment when you have spoken off-the-cuff when I say off the cuff, I mean in character, but in response to somebody. And you've had uh, a moment of being moved by severe identification with Mrs. Washington. Have you have you ever had a moment, perhaps even by yourself in costume, walking around at the end of the day when the facility closes down, where you've had a moment of reverie, private thought, about the very person you're portraying and actually almost spiritually feel, felt connected to her?
2: Very much so. When was Uh, that? Very much so. Well, there have been a few. Um, Mrs. Washington deals with a lot of loss in her life. She outlives everyone. She outlives both of her parents, all seven of her siblings, all four of her children, both husbands. She outlives everyone. But there is a particular moment in her life where her daughter, her youngest child, um, whom she has wrapped in bubble wrap for all of her life because she suffered from seizures, most likely epilepsy, but she loses her daughter mm. when her daughter is 17 years old to a, what we would call a grand mal seizure today. And it it the way Washington describes it in the letter is it took her to the lowest ebbs of her misery. And there have been one or two times where a guest has asked me about that child in just the right way, where the answer has just it breaks my heart to mm. have to talk to a guest about losing my child. Um, in a way that I think just reading it on a, on a page in a book, it, it will never really be able to highlight. Um, I have another moment. I've had a few moments with uh, women, in particular, when when I talked about her losing her husband, her first husband, um, and and the feeling of being a widow. Mm. And I've had widows come up to me and say, thank you. No one ever really talks about what it's like to be a widow. And they've been very rewarding moments for me. Um, uh, And and I feel connected to Mrs. Washington. But, you know, it's interesting because I'm I'm very protective of her story as well. And I know that, as I just spoke a minute ago, my job is to be a teacher. But Sometimes when you embody these people so much, you also embody the vulnerability that comes with telling these very personal, hard stories. And there have been times where if a guest is extraordinarily flippant about asking about my children, like I, I've had a guest say, yeah, isn't your daughter dead yet? Oh, wow. You, I feel angry, and it takes me a minute to kind of separate myself from her and go, whoa, 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 Catherine, make this a teaching moment.
0: It's a situational callousness. Uh, that you encounter yeah
2: Yeah. and hopefully you know and the the intention is to never embarrass the guest but hopefully I can then turn that around and answer it to where maybe that person will think twice about asking a a very callous question like that again Um, with the understanding that at the end of the day when I come back and take off my costume I do have to kind of remind myself that I'm not Mrs. Washington, and I need to put her away so that I can go and be a a mother and a wife to my own family at home.
0: What do you think is the greatest misconception about Martha Washington that you would like to rectify and correct now?
2: Oh, my goodness, what a wonderful question. Um, You know, when I was first asked if I would consider portraying Mrs. Washington, uh, it was posed to me as, what do you think about Martha Washington? And at that time, I had not given her two thoughts other than what i had and clearly what I had seen at colonial williamsburg and, and my general knowledge and and I remember very flippantly responding, "I don't know she had a thing for big caps and an obsession with her children because that's really the image that we as Americans see of our first mm-hmm. uh first president and his and his wife is is that dowdy housewife with the big caps. Maybe people know she was married before, maybe not, and the thing that I have realized. As I have gotten to know Mrs. Washington, away from just being George Washington's wife, but getting to know her as a human and as an individual, is she was so much more than just that dowdy housewife sitting at home. She was amazingly strong-willed. She was amazingly smart, funny. She had an amazing personality. And I wish that people would give our historic figures more than just a two-dimensional lens.
0: At the outset of this program, we spoke about first ladies from Martha to Melania. What advice, if any, do you think Martha Washington would have for Melania Trump?
2: I think that Mrs. Washington would tell Mrs. Trump to always keep her head held high
0: mm-hmm. and to
2: never let the public see the inner turmoil that I'm sure she's living through.
0: Very interesting. Very good. Thank you, Catherine Pittman, so very much for being a part of this program. I want to get my wife and myself up to Colonial Williamsburg and see your portrayal, interpretation, taking on all the accoutrements of this woman, her psyche, her life, her love, her fears. Thank you.
2: Well, it's my pleasure, and you are always welcome. You're going to be in D.C., you can come on in. Come on in. You got a ranch in this branch of the government.
0: Yeah. Executive branch. Give a hail to the chief executive.
1: Amazing. What's the President. Executing the laws for the place we live. So bills yeah. the All prince the will say yeah. say yeah. All the people say no. That's why every four years we put it up to us. Welcome to the
0: In listening to Watching America, a WHRV production made possible in part by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. Our producer extraordinaire is Paul Bibo, senior producer and editor Gina Gamboni, executive producer Chuck Dowd. Chief of Content, Heather Mazzoni, and CEO, Bert
1: Schmidt. I'm the
0: show and series creator and host, yours truly, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings.